Hey, where are you going to get started? Um, I know there's a little bit more food over here. Feel free to help yourself if you like some uh, seconds or thirds. Um, but really glad you're here. Um, if, you're, if you're new to River West or maybe just visiting this morning, my name is Mike. I'm the pastor of Family Life. And uh, this is what I get really excited about, talking to a, a room full of dads. And in this case, I know we have some granddads, which is fantastic. Um, we're going to talk about some things that are really, really important, some things that the Lord has put on my heart. And I'm thankful for the opportunity to be able to share those with you this morning. So um, I'm going to start with some questions, okay? You can raise your hand if you agree with these statements. I'm just curious to know if, if you agree. Uh, first of all, how many of you believe that it is an incredibly difficult time for boys in our country right now? Yeah, that's why you're here. Okay, excellent. All right. All right. How many of you believe that boys are less motivated, less driven than they were maybe 20 to 30 years ago? Okay. And how many of you are worried about our culture's view of what a man should be? Yeah. So I don't, I don't need to spend a lot of time trying to persuade you, but I think this is an incredibly difficult time for our boys, and it's a really, really interesting time uh, to be a man all right, in, in our culture. Um, I definitely believe it's tough. And, you know, I, uh, I was a child of the 70s and 80s. If I look back at my childhood, and I know it's really easy to romanticize your childhood, um, I had a great one, all right? It was filled with, you know, with adventure and friends and sports, and I had a ton of freedom, you know, a lot more freedom than I know, um, you know most of our kids have today. Um, I really struggled in school. You know, I learned early on that I was going to have to work really hard if I wanted to make those, those good grades. You know, but time has certainly changed. There's so many things, I think, stacked up against our boys. Um, you know, technology has changed. School has changed. Uh, video games have changed. Um, you know, pornography, just at your fingertips. I mean, that's, that's changed. You know, there's a lot stacked up against our boys. And all the research shows, too, that, uh, you know, the pressure for our boys is incredible. Um, you know, more boys are on uh, anxiety medication than ever before, taking medicine for, you know, ADHD. You know, that's on the rise. Um, and also, boys are just underachieving in school, uh, statistically. Um, you know, fewer young men are going to college. You know, more and more young men are content with just living at home, not even working, you know, just living off of their parents. Um, related to college enrollment, in 1970, 58% of undergraduate students were male. In 1980, that dropped to 48 percent, and in 2010, that dropped to 43 percent, and that number has just been on the decline ever since. And also, young men are more likely to drop out of college um, than women are. Um, and I've also I've, you know, I've talked to a lot of dads and other men who look at boys today, and they say things like, you know, boys are just lazy. Okay, they're not as motivated. They're not as driven. They don't have the ambition. Also, I've talked to a lot of female friends, you know, in their mid-20s to, to late-20s, and they lament the same thing, like, there are not quality guys out there. Guys aren't motivated, um, and they're really dis and, and, and disheartened as well. Um, but we have to ask ourselves, you know, is it really true? Are boys lazier now than they used to be? Are they less motivated? And if they are, well, then, then why? You know, I know it's really easy to say something like that, but if that is truly the case, I think we all agree that it is. The, you know, the question is, is why? Um, I read an incredible, incredible book over the summer. Um, it is by uh, Dr. Sachs, and it's called Boys Adrift. Um, and it answered a lot of the questions I had surrounding this. And so for my talk this morning, a lot of them I'm taking from is going to be from this book. Um, and I would encourage you to read it um, as well. Obviously, I can't cover everything, but he identifies five factors 
um, that are driving the growing epidemic of unmade, unmotivated boys and underachieving young men. And what those are, it's, it's video games, teaching methods, just changes in school, prescription drugs, environmental toxins, and the devaluation of, of masculinity. So for our time today, the main three I'm gonna focus on are video games, uh, teaching method and school, and then that, uh, the culture's view of masculinity. I think those are the big three, but I do wanna to touch on the other two because I think they're really important um, as well. Um, but I encourage you to read the book. If you're interested in what I'm sharing, I encourage you to read the book. Uh, but also I'm gonna be bringing just my own experience. You know, I've been working with other people's children for over 25 years now. You know, part of that was as a camp director, uh, as a swim coach, as a youth pastor, as a young life leader, and now as a family life pastor. And so I've, I've seen a lot. So I can kind of bring some of that to the table as well. And I have a son, a son who I love dearly, who, um, you know, he's a, he's a junior, his name is Mason, he's 16, and uh, goes to Westland High School. You know, I've got a daughter as well, she's a freshman this year at Baylor. So, um, you know, I, I got my own kids that I, I, I want to invest in, love, support, encourage, and challenge as well. So I read this book for me, and I read it for, for you um, as well. So we're going to dive right in, all right? We're going to start with factor number one, and we're going to start with video games, Okay. 1979, I think it was 1979, 10 years old. That was when, well, actually, hold on a second. This is Dig Dug. Do, do you guys remember Dig Dug? Okay, this came out in 1982. Just listen to those, those sound effects. Just, if you're not familiar with this game, I don't know exactly what you're doing. You look like a little Smurf. You're dropping rocks on dragons and you're inflating them and then they blow up. This is my favorite. It started with Pac-Man and then it went to this. Okay, but games have changed. Now we can look at this different. This is a modern video game. We can go ahead. I, this would have blown my little 10-year-old mind. I mean, I could not have ever fathomed playing a game like this. When I was content with Dig Dug, I don't know what I would have done with a game like this. And my son enjoys playing these kind of games, and I try to play, but I am horrible. Okay, this is what I grew up with. I grew up with a, this is what I had, a joystick with a fire button, and that was plenty, and that's all you needed for Dig Dug, okay? For Pac-Man, you did not even need the fire button, okay? But this is what a controller looks like now. I, I have to look at the controller, and while I'm looking at the controller, that's when I get shot. Um, so I've tried to enter in that world with my son, but I am pathetic when it comes to video games. I'm just curious, right now, how many of you guys consider yourself gamers? I mean, how many of you are into the games? Yeah. And I'm saying right now, there's nothing wrong with that. This is not Mike going anti-video games, okay? You need to hear that. Um, but I do think they were raging war on our boys. So that's what we're going to be focusing on. Um, and also, it was a dream, you know, growing up. Like, I mean, I, I wanted to make a career out of video games. I think every kid thinks that. You can now, all right? You can get a college scholarship to play video games, all right? It's called eSports. Um, people fill arenas now 
That's not to watch you know, the Blazers, that's to watch other people play video games. So you can win prize money in the six figures, um, which is incredible. Um, you can get video gaming uh, design degrees. The University of Utah is one of the biggest that does that. And you, again, you can get a, a scholarship, a sports scholarship playing video games. Um, so it's a little bit different right, than my video games of the 80s. But the question you need to ask, you know, why, what's the attraction? Okay, why are boys just drawn to these games? And if you asked them, you know, most of them are going to say, well, it's really fun. This is what all my friends do. It's really cool. The graphics are amazing. You know, I can play with people you know, all over the world. And you can, which is definitely true. Um, and it's not to say that all boys that play video games are lazy. That's really, but there's, there's a generation of men who maybe didn't grow up with video games look at that and think, well, they're just, they're just lazy. Um, but there's something so much bigger, something more significant at work um, that I think we really have to understand. And now this is not true for all boys, of course, but there's one reason you know, that comes down to why they're so drawn to video games. It's, it's, it's control and conquest. Okay? And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, because I think we're all looking for areas in our life where we have control, where we can conquer, where we can dominate, and the video game world gives you that opportunity. All right? So let's say you're struggling in school. You know, you're failing Spanish. The girl of your dreams does not know that you exist. All right? You had a rough go of it with some of your buddies. You know, your life is kind of spiraling out of control. So you start looking for that thing. What can I control? You put a game controller in their hand, and, and then they got it. All right? And they could dominate. And it feels good. All right? Not just for boys playing video games, but I think anywhere where you can dominate, it does feel good. Now, Nietzsche calls this the will to power. All right? The will to power. And it does not relate, you know, obviously just to video games, but here's a point that Dr. Sachs makes, which I think is really interesting. He says, um, you know, young men that had this drive who were born before video games would channel this energy into something more productive, becoming successful entrepreneurs, daring innovators, explorers, politicians, or soldiers. And he writes, I suspect that a boy born today with the DNA of a general Patton would more likely become a video game addict. He might have a job, but there's a real risk that his drive and his energy will be directed into video games rather than his career. So again, if you think about life, you know, I think there's so much pressure on our boys today. Life can be lonely and difficult and challenging. So you're looking for that, that outlet. So you can find it in, in video games. I think we all naturally gravitate to the places where we can have success. You know, I think we're wired that way. Um, I want to share this. This comes from the book. Um, just consider this. It says, um, if you haven't played video games in the past 10 years, you may not understand how addictive some of them can be, owing to the advances in technology, particularly for boys motivated by the will to power. Imagine that you are such a boy, the reincarnation of General S. Patton. That boy can now play a video game in which he gets in a tank, hears the clang as he closes the hatch, feels the rumble from 300-watt subwoofers as his tank treads crush the rubble of a demolished house and fires off depleted uranium rounds at an enemy outpost. Okay, experience the thrill of victory. Like that, that sounds really cool. All right, I can see why boys would be, would be drawn to that. Um, here's a commercial. This came out several years ago, but this is a commercial for video games from, for PlayStation. I think it's fantastic.
not to be great. You, with the imagination of a brilliant child and the powers of an ancient god, who are you to be ordinary? You, who can rescind life or raise the dead. Who are you to be afraid? You, who can serve as judge and jury while hoarding infinite lives. Who are you to be a slave to the past? You who can travel time like the oceans and rewrite history with a single word. Who are you to be anonymous? You, whose name should be spoken in reverent tones or in terrified whispers. Who are you to deny greatness? If you would deny to yourself, you deny to the entire world. And we will not be denied. That gets me pumped up. I mean, it gets me motivated. I mean, and I'm not, a, I'm not a gamer, but I see something like that. It makes me want to play video games, all right? Who am I to deny, you know, deny greatness? Right? That appeals to me. And just as a little test, I showed it to some women in my life, and they're like, wait, what? <laughs> it, it, it did nothing for them, all right? My wife went so far as to say, that's just silly. And I felt, I could feel like the, mm, you know, raging in me to go conquer, to go do something, all right? So... Greatness awaits. Who are you not to be great? So when it comes to video games, you know, obviously there's an appeal. Um, but it comes down to content and then the time spent. Okay, content and the time spent dedicated to playing games. So let's talk about the content first. You know, there are millions of games out there. Um, and there's a big difference between video game, uh, violent video games and nonviolent video games. So think of you know, Call of Duty versus you know, Grand Theft Auto versus like Madden and uh, Mario Kart. Okay, there is definitely a difference. And research shows that young men who play violent video games, change, it changes their brain, right? becoming desensitized to violence in ways not seen in young men who do not play violent video games. And the more realistic the violence, okay, the bigger the effect. Um, you know, kids who spend many hours a week playing um, uh, violent video games, they're changed by the experience. Um, they might not realize they're being changed by the experience, but they are being changed um, by the experience. And so there's some negative changes. Okay, first of all is attention deficit. In most games, you know, distractibility is rewarded. Okay, maybe not when you're playing Dig Dug, but when you're playing Call of Duty, you, you're going constantly monitoring, watching, looking. Um, and so that distractibility is rewarded and there's so much happening at once, so you can't afford to focus on just one thing. You know, that's how you get shot. So the more time you spend playing video games like this, the more likely you are to develop difficulties maintaining sustained concentration on a single item when you're not playing video games. Okay? Also, risk-taking. Okay, the second point, this is one of the dangers, risk-taking. The world of video games is unreal. Okay? And clearly, that's one of the joys, okay? one of the escape, one of the things that makes it really fun. Um, for three years, you know, I held a Bible study in my house for middle school boys. And as they were kind of coming in, this is, we do breakfast, you know, had the Bible study before they would go to school. But as they were coming in, you know, we had a PlayStation and the boys would play, uh, uh, it's called Need for Speed Most Wanted. 
And I thought, okay, it's a harmless game because no one's dying. But it's basically you pick the car of your choice, you pick the city of your choice, and you're running from the police, okay? So we're celebrating when, you know, they outrun the police. We're celebrating when they fly off a bridge or they wreck into another car. You know, all those things are really fun and good. And I I think, oh, it's harmless. All right, research has found that teens who play these risk-glorifying driving games are more likely to engage in dangerous driving behaviors such as speeding, tailgating, and weaving in traffic, more likely to be pulled over by the police and more likely to drink and drive, all right? Statistically speaking, you know, now I'm like, all these boys that I started with, the middle, now they're all juniors in high school and they're all driving, all right? So if they get in a wreck, I guess they can blame me. Um, it also says they were three times as likely to be in an actual car crash compared with teens who did not play such video games. Okay, it has an effect, whether we realize it or not. And the third negative effect um, is obesity. And that might seem really obvious, because it's like, okay, if you're playing video games 20 hours a week, well, then you're not exercising. But also, just by the way the video games, as you're watching it, there's a stimulant, you know, way more than television, that increases your appetite, all right? And so boys are not, they're exercising less, they're eating, they're eating more, all right? So that's content, you know, the content does make a difference. But also, just it's how much time you spend playing video games. Uh, 66% of kids, 8 to 12, play video games for two hours a day, 14 hours a week. 56% uh, of kids, 12 to 17, play video games for two and a half hours a day. Um, so I think about that. If you're spending you know, two hours a day on video games, that's two hours you're not spending doing something productive. And I think for most of us, we're like, oh my God, what a gift that would be. If I had two hours in my day, an additional 14 hours, what could I do? I could, learn, I could learn Spanish. You know, we think we could do something better with those hours. And I think our boys could do something better with the hours than they would spend playing video games. You know, that's more time for homework. You know, that's more time to go to church, to read their Bibles, to engage in actual conversations, to volunteer, to serve, to work somewhere, go hunting, fishing, hiking, you know, get out of the house. Wonderful opportunities, so many things they could be doing, but that's those two hours a day that a lot of boys are losing. And also video games, I mean, they're not preparing boys for real life. You know, video games are not preparing boys to be better men. And if anything, it could be, you know, the opposite. Um, so this is an example that Dr. Sachs used. Like we'll talk, um, you know, patience, for example. You know, patience is a virtue. It is a learned skill. Um, it does not come natural to most people, all right? And as you can imagine, in video games, patience is not rewarded. Um, so this is, what, uh, this is what he wrote. Let's see. Preparing teenagers for the demands of real life requires helping them acquire skills quite different from the ones they gain while mastering video games. Imagine a young father in his 20s, let's say, trying to comfort his crying baby daughter. There are no buttons to push, no photon torpedoes to fire. The right thing to do may be simply to rock the baby and hum a lullaby. The chief virtue required may not be lightning virtuosity of the game controller, but merely patience. If you need to get along with a belligerent coworker, the chief virtue you need may not be blazing speed, but patience. In most video games, the best way to deal with difficult people is to shoot them. Uh, in the real world, what you need is not uh, lethal uh, weaponry, but patience. Okay, so our boy, well, they're not, you know, no, I don't know any teenage boys are playing video games thinking about what, you know, I'm learning to become a better man, but they're learning 
something, all right? Um, and it's most likely not going to serve them well as they get, they get older. Um, so as a parent, what do you do as a parent? You know, I'm just, how many of your boys play video games? Raise your hand. All right, how many of you wish they played video games less than they did? Okay, here's, um, this is some guidelines. This comes from Dr. Craig Anderson. Um, he's a professor of a, uh, and, and an author of a book called Violent Video Game Effects on Children and Adolescents. So he says, first of all, just addressing content, um, it's not wise to let your son play video games in which a player is rewarded for killing police officers or non-combatant civilians, okay? That makes sense to me. Other things to consider, does a game involve characters trying to harm others? Does this happen frequently? Is the harm rewarded in any way? Is the harm portrayed as humorous? Are realistic consequences of violence absent from the game, okay? And related to the time spent playing, as a guideline, he suggests no more than 40 minutes on a school night and an hour a day on, on weekends, okay? And I would imagine most of your boys would play way more than that. To be limited to 40 might be really, really difficult. Um, and I think one of the points he makes too is video games needs to be a reward. It's how you end the day. It's something fun that you get to do once you've done everything else. But increasingly in our culture, I think, you know, we gravitate to things obviously that we want to do and that kind of pushes out the things that we need to be doing, um, homework, chores, that type of thing. Um, and also he talks about just activities displaced, you know, making sure your son knows where his priorities should be. It's family, friends, it's church, his homework, it's their teams, if they're involved with the team sport. Um, those commitments take priority over, over video games. Um, and we talked about that will to power, that need to just have control. Um, there's some things you can do related to that too, um, that will to power. You know, help your, your son find an alternative outside of, of video games. Um, you know, a mastery of a skill, you know, something that he hasn't done yet, a mastery of a skill, help him find the right fit. You know, maybe it's a sport or finding, you know, finding the right sport somewhere. Just, again, that's one thing that's great about sport. It's a competition, it's a conquest, you know, it's winning, it's competing, you know, finding the right sport. It could be hunting or fishing, it could be camping or hiking. You know, I know a lot of boys are involved with Boy Scouts and that idea of just achieving a merit badge. Like there's that sense of accomplishment. Okay, you're achieving something, you're doing something. Um, all that I think way healthier, way better than, you know, video games. And maybe your son, maybe he's more intellectual. You know, it's, has you ever introduced your son to chess? Um, math competition, speech and debate, you know, mock trial. You know, the older they get, the more opportunities they'll have. But that will to power is a real thing. I mean, I'm sure many of us have that as well, that, 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 that desire to, to conquer, you know, to prove ourselves healthier alternatives than just in video games, Okay. Um, so that's number one. That's the first factor is video games. Number two, second factor is school and teaching methods. Um, how many of you guys read the book, All I Really Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten? Do you guys read that book? Came out in 1996. Just one of you? Really? I love that book. It came out in 1986. It was on the New York Times bestseller list for a long time. Uh, the author, uh, Robert Fulgham, uh, wrote this. Um, in kindergarten, uh, you need, well, it, it speaks to the idea of having a balanced life, um, which meant that in every day one should learn some and think some and draw and paint and sing and dance and play some um, in everyday life. All right, that sounds nice. And he's thinking about when he was in middle or in, in uh, kindergarten, um, when he was in the 40s and 50s, and he draws on the experiences of his children who were in kindergarten, like in the 60s, 70s, somewhere around there. 
Um, and it sounds really nice. You go to, to learn how to paint and dance and play, but kindergarten today is very, very different. Um, you don't learn how to draw and paint. You learn how to read and write. Um, so the first grade curriculum is now the kindergarten curriculum in most schools. Um, and one elementary school superintendent is quoted as saying, the 21st century kindergarten needs to be rigorous and academic. Kindergarten, okay? Kindergarten has become first grade. And as it relates to school, as we talk about this, uh, there are two things I want to examine. First is, you know, learning must be age appropriate and engaging. So if kindergarten, you know, is now first grade, you know, we do that because we think a head start is the right way to do it, right? If you, if you start, a yeah, head start is going to make them, you know, they're going to be smarter earlier, smarter longer. So starting earlier makes a lot of sense. Um, but all this research shows that it does not work that way, especially for boys. Um, and it, the research demonstrates that there's a huge difference in how the brains of girls and boys develop. All right, that's probably not surprising to you. Gray matter develops earlier and faster in girls with the result that the gray matter of the brain of the average adolescent girl is about two years more advanced than that of a boy, all right? And then boys catch up around the age of 14. And it's not to say that girls are smarter than boys and that one day boys will become smarter than girls. It's just say they develop differently. They, dif they develop physically differently and they, they clearly develop differently um, intellectually as well. Um, so at age five, who do you think is ready to sit down for a full day and learn how to read, you know, how to write? Um, so here's how it often plays out. And I'm speaking very generally here, of course. Um, but a kindergarten teacher is teaching reading and writing. Girls are learning. Boys are struggling. And boys, they lose interest. So one of two things typically happens when that is the case. One, um, the teacher might say, you know what, your son might have ADHD. You might want to have that checked out. So medication is the option because your boy, your five-year-old, I, I can't understand it. He can't sit still for six hours, okay? Option number two, and this happens in a lot of classrooms as well too, they divide up the boys and girls. And I shouldn't say that. It's not always divide up boys and girls, but they have the reading group and then they have the play group. And that's not to say all the girls are in one, all the boys are in another. Of course, there are exceptions, but they split up the classroom, all right? And here is what happens, because boys, even as young as five, have a different name for the two groups. They have, they call it the smart group and the dumb group. And I'm not saying this is rational, but this, we're talking about five-year-olds. I don't know many rational five-year-olds, um, but the result is boys don't think that their teachers like them, um, or they think that they are dumb, or they decide that they hate school, or they think the teacher only likes girls. Like I've heard that over and over and over again. I don't know if you've heard that from your boys or not, but I've heard that repeatedly. My teacher only likes girls. And again, I'm not saying that's rational, and I don't think that's true of most teachers, but this can be horrific. If you think about this, if a kindergarten student, a five-year-old already has decided that he is dumb or does not like school, he's got a long way to go, all right? And if you're disenfranchised at that age, everything after that's gonna be so much more difficult and so much more challenging. Something else, I thought this is really fascinating. This also comes from the book. Critics of American education often point out quite accurately that the United States spends more money per pupil than most other developed countries and yet accomplishes less. On the international test most widely administered around the world, the United States ranks number 24 
in reading well below countries whose per pupil spending on education is much lower. For example, Poland is number 10, Finland is number six. This is what I think is really fascinating. Finland, incidentally, consistently scores very well on these international rankings. What's so special about the public education in Finland? Here is one interesting feature. Children in Finland don't begin any formal schooling until they are seven. That's when they start kindergarten. Nevertheless, by the time they're teenagers, Finnish children are beating American children by large margins on the same tests. Okay? So in our mind, we're thinking, start earlier, it'll help. And in reality, starting earlier is actually hurting generations of boys. Um, here's another way to look at it. Okay, most babies take their first steps sometime between 9 and 12 months. Um, and they're walking well by the time they're 14 or 15 months old. But let's say you have a son who starts walking at six months. Right? That'd be a little crazy, right? Maybe running at seven months. You might be really excited about that. You might be thinking about college scholarships. You're looking way ahead. Look how advanced my son is. This is incredible. Well, guess what? Everyone catches up. Everyone catches up. Just because your son started walking earlier does not mean he'll be out walking the competition for the rest of his life. But for some reason, we think when it comes to school, yes, yeah, starting earlier will be a great thing. And in fact, all the research says that, you know, perhaps not. Um, they don't give college scholarships to advanced baby walkers, unfortunately. Um, and for kids to learn, okay, obviously the learning needs to be engaging. Um, when it's not engaging, boys get bored. And if you're bored, you're more likely to be distracted. And that's a big word you'll hear if you ask teachers, gosh, you know, these kids are so distracted. In 1979, researchers estimated that only about 1.2% of American kids, as 12 out of 1,000, have ADHD. Now it's about 110 kids out of 1,000. Um, and often kids are misdiagnosed. Uh, they may not be paying attention, um, but their deficit of attention doesn't have anything to do with ADHD, but rather a lack of motivation in the classroom. Most boys don't need drugs. They need motivation and challenge. Okay, So let's talk about that for a minute. As a parent, what can you do? Well, you could hold your son back a year. Um, increasingly, more parents are choosing to do that. You know, there was a time that was a big deal in Texas where I grew up, but you weren't doing it for, you know, intellectual academic reasons. You're doing it. So by the time your son was a senior, he's 19 years old, he's dominating on the football field, all right? But now people are doing it for academic uh, reasons, and um, they're calling that the gift of a year. You know, by no means am I saying you need to do this, but we wanted to do that with our son, Mason. And that was our plan had we stayed in Texas, but we moved here. It wasn't an option. Uh, he has a summer birthday. He was young for his grade. And so we started kindergarten, um, just like with all the other five-year-olds. And I will never forget this. The very first day of class, you know, all the parents walked in with the kids. And we're standing there, and he's at his desk. And I could tell he was so nervous. I mean, all the kids were nervous. The very first thing the teacher said was, okay, I want you to write your name on this piece of paper. So I look, and the girl sitting next to Mason, man, cursive. It was beautiful. I mean, better cursive than I could write. And Mason's like, I don't know how to hold a pencil, all right? And I could see, he was really, I could tell he was like trying to spell his name. Like maybe we blew his apparent. We at three, we should have been teaching him to write his name, I guess. But he struggled with that. And we walked out of that. Kathleen was like, what have we done? What have we done? Okay, he caught up. All right, but he struggled when he was younger, okay? He did struggle when he was younger. Um, and that was hard on us as, as parents. So you can hold your son back a year. You can get a tutor, you know, like 
a lot of reasons why we don't, because God, ah, tutors are expensive, but it is an investment in the future for your son. All right, it will pay off, especially if your son you know, is struggling in some way, if he has dyslexia, if he does have you know, ADHD. You know, if your son is thinking that he's dumb, oh my gosh, that is gonna set him for failure for the rest of his life. All right, get him the help that he needs, you know, start, and that starts young. Um, look for wins outside of the classroom. If they're not winning at school, like where can they win? You know, promote those things, encourage those things, you know, right? as long as it's not video games, all right? Promote learning outside of school. You know, a lot of boys that struggle in school because they're just not interested in the subject matter, but maybe because they're not studying geology yet and your son loves geology, or maybe it's astronomy, uh, maybe it's Greek mythology. You know, find something that your son is interested in. A lot of education clearly takes place outside of school, but find those things and encourage that. Um, all right, so that's point one. Schools must be appropriate and engaging, age appropriate and engaging and so often schools are not. The second point is, um, unfortunately, I think increasingly, and again, more research shows this, school is becoming unfriendly to boys. I don't know if you've experienced that or heard that, but increasingly, school is becoming unfriendly to boys. In one way, so many schools now, they're dropping recess, and they're dropping P.E., um, and you think about a boy, a young boy in school, I mean, they, they need that outlet. They need that place to run and play and do whatever, get out those wiggles so they can focus later. But again, the desire to really promote you know, academics, they're taking those things away, making it really hard for boys. And they hear repeatedly, sit, sit, sit. When I was in fifth grade, um, we, 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 had, we were bust. Um, I grew up in Portland, Texas. You guys know there was a Portland, Texas? Portland, Oregon, Portland, Maine, Portland, Texas, okay? Um, South Texas. And so there was this one year where they did busing where, um, you know, the, the white population was not really mingling with the Hispanic population. So they bust us all around, mix everybody up. And it was a disaster. Okay. There were so many discipline issues. I wish I could go back now and ask my parents about what was really going on. Cause I know it was a really big political thing too, but it was so bad when I was in fifth grade, this back, this is 1979, 1980. Um, we, when we got to school, right, from the moment we got off the bus, we had to walk in a straight line to our classroom, and we lined up outside the classroom. We weren't allowed to talk, okay? And then during lunch, we were not allowed to talk, all right? We sat silently during lunch, and I remember I got in trouble because I asked my friend, hey, what flavor Kool-Aid do you have? So the punishment was you had to go sit by yourself up on the stage, which was mortifying, all right? And then um, after school, when we were going to go home, we lined up in the gym. We had to sit down. We were not allowed to talk. We had to sit still. On the bus home, we were not allowed to talk. It was all about sit and be quiet, sit and be quiet, sit and be quiet. All right. I thank God that they did not cut PE. That was my saving grace. I loved PE. It was always right in the middle of the day. All right. It, I think it kept me sane. I look back at that. I needed that outlet. Most boys you know, need that kind of outlet. Um, the, uh, oh, Mason, I did love this. Mason in first grade had a teacher, Mrs. Shannon, and she got boys. She really got it. So they're sitting there and she could kind of pick up on when she felt like, all right, I'm losing my class. You know, I'm losing them. So she would have like workout dance parties, just spontaneously would play really fun music, have all the kids stand up. They would da dance around. They would exercise, do jumping jacks. They'd have different boys lead it. The teacher, she actually filmed it and then gave us all a CD, a copy of it. It's hysterical. All right. But you got the wiggles out. You burn some energy. Then you're much more likely to sit down. But a lot of teachers would never do that. 
Um, most boys, they get the chance, they want to be active, they want to run and play. You know, so I think school obviously is a detriment to that now. Cell phones are a detriment to that. You know, right now, like we'd much rather just be staring at a screen. If you ever drive by like a middle school bus stop, you'd not see kids interacting, talking or what, they're just, everyone's staring. Um, you know, and I think it's really sad. You know, boys don't play, girls don't play as much as they used to. Um, Dr. Sachs also talks about, you know, most schools now in the North, they have a no snowball fight policy. Um, you, know, you just can't do it. And, but when he was growing up, uh, I think it was in Minnesota, you know, the, the teachers would engage in snowball fights with the kids, all right? They loved it. Like right now, I'm picturing a, like a, a, a male teacher especially, you know, making this some awesome wicked snowball and hitting a kid in the face. That's a lawsuit, all right? It's abuse. But back then, it was fun. And man, you respected the teacher that had the wicked curveball. Um, but we've lost that, clearly, um, in our culture. Um, and boys, you know, they act differently than girls, clearly, but they also think differently. This is another example from the book uh, that Dr. Sachs mentions. Um, a 10th grade English teacher um, asked students to write a story. It could be about anything that they want. And a boy named Jacob chose to write about the battle of Stalingrad, okay, winter 1942, and he wrote it from the perspective of a Russian soldier. He carefully researched the battle to get the details right, and it was not surprisingly a bloody story. Jacob was suspended from school. The school counselor told his parents that Jacob would not be permitted to return until the parents had obtained an evaluation by a licensed professional counselor in a note from that professional saying that Jacob would not be a harm to himself and would pose no imminent danger to anyone at the school. Um, and also, ironically, Dr. Sachs says, you know, he wrote a very similar paper back in the 70s. It was a creative writing assignment, and he won an award for it. He won an award. And now this kid that wrote that story had to get a psychological evaluation. But there is a difference, okay? Like if you ask a boy to write a story about Roman gladiators, you can expect it to be bloody and gory, right? All right, but there's kind of generic violence versus specific targeted violence. So if that same boy was to write an article about wanting to stab a classmate, okay, that's different, okay, way different. I think we all can agree that that is different. Um, and so this, he has a whole argument that he makes about what's inbounds and out of bounds, okay? So, unfortunately. Um, also, another way that schools have become increasingly less friendly, um, there is a lack of healthy competition. Most schools have tried to take all competition out of the school. Where I think most boys you know, enjoy competition, again, not all, but I think most boys do. Um, there's a drive to prove yourself, to compete, to win. Um, but I think the pendulum has happened, the pendulum has swung so far, you know, like you can be over competitive, and I totally understand that and get that, but the pendulum has swung so far that now almost any kind of competition is seen as a negative, especially in elementary school. I guess different in high school, but this whole fear of like crushing someone, you know, their young little spirit um, or, or hurting, um, you know, their self-worth or their value because they lost. But that is real life. You have winners, you have losers, you know, they value self-esteem over really encouraging people to work hard and go for it. In a culture that doesn't reward hard work, well, then a lot of boys are like, well, then what difference does it make? Why try hard? If my hard work will not be rewarded, why try hard? What difference does, does it make? Um, high school, I think, obviously, is different. I mean, you have athletics in high school. You have, you know, things like mock trial, speech, debate, ban. Like, there's more. The older you get, there's more opportunity. Elementary school, so much of that has been done away with. Um, and, um, you know, I mentioned PE before. 
I grew up with, the, I think, the world's greatest PE teacher. I'm so thankful. And, and right now, though, if you have boys that are in elementary school, PE is weird, okay? It's not engaging, not challenging, not fun. Like, we, we actually played seasons. Um, you know, we had a football season. I never played football outside of PE, but I learned how to play football in PE. We had a baseball season. We had a basketball season. We had volleyball. We had a track season, all right? And then we had winners and losers. Every season would end in a big competition, and the winners would receive prizes. The losers received nothing. Um, and I remember the track season would kind of culminate with the fastest boy racing the fastest girl. The whole school would watch. Usually, I was the fastest boy. I never beat the fastest girl ever. Okay, Stacy Schmidt kicked my butt every single year, but somehow my self-esteem survived. Okay. Um, I thrived on that kind of competition. Now, my kids, they'd laugh about what, what their PE experience was. You know, they played a game where you, it was, at first it sounded like it was a race, but you, you couldn't run because that might hurt someone. You might trip and fall if you were running. So you had to walk and you walk to the stage and then you walk to the back wall. But if you walk too quickly, you got disqualified. I mean, I don't know what kind of competition that was, but Mason and my daughter Maddie, they still joke about that. All right. So there's a lack of, of healthy competition. Also, even in school, I think, again, it goes back to the self-esteem. I cannot imagine this ever happening. But when I was in elementary school, I think this was sixth grade. I had a teacher with, um, on one of the walls, it was gigantic, made a, uh, a football field out of construction paper. And then every kid in class had a little football, a little you know, uh, brown you know, construction paper football with their name on it, all tacked. And we all started on the 10-yard line. And then every Friday, she would give a spelling test. And if you made 100 on your spelling test, you would advance 10 yards, okay? And the goal was to get to the end zone. I thought that, that was my motivation. I did not care about learning the vocabulary words, but man, I wanted my football to get a touchdown. I can't imagine teachers doing that now, but it worked for me. It worked for me. I like that kind of competition. You know, I was motivated to work and, and study hard. Um, the, uh, I, I thought this was fascinating. There's a, some, you know, I think some private schools do this, um, where you, know, you show up on the first day of school and you're assigned a team. You know, you got the blue team, you got the white team, you're on that team for life. And you're scoring points for your team all the way through the, the, through the year. Sometimes that's an academic competition, sometimes it's an athletic competition. But I think that does something for boys, all right? Not just an individual, but as a, as a team. When I uh, was a camp director, uh, actually, a camp counselor, when I was still in college, I worked at this little camp in northern New Mexico. It was Cimarron Cedar Ranch Camp for Boys. And it was classic, because like, there's the boys camp. The boys would stay for six weeks. There's this like, little ridge over here was the girls camp. And you would get together on Friday night for dances. But those boys, you showed up day one, you're either a ranger or you're a cowboy. You're on that team for life. And if you had a younger brother coming up the next year, guess what? He'd be on the same team that you were on. All right, they, keep, they kept records of this going back to the 20s. So a dad who went to that camp, his son, his grandson, guaranteed to be on the same team that he was on. You would score points for your team every Sunday, all right, and the different activities that they would run. Um, sometimes, you know, it was a trivia contest, you know, sometimes it was a sporting event, but they try to have something for, for everyone. Well, there's something about the team dynamic, not just the individual success, but think about this. Like if there is a, you know, a spelling bee at your kid's school, maybe, maybe your son's horrible at spelling. And he's thinking, why even bother? Okay, I'm not going to win. Why try? Why would I do that? But if his success determined, you know, how well his team would do, 
he would be way more likely to be engaged like for the benefit of the team. Like, oh wow, this hinges on me. I, I can make a difference. I better up my game for the benefit of my team, all right? So for me growing up, swimming was always my favorite sport, which largely is as an individual sport, except when it came to relays. And this is the, the relay mentality. I cannot tell you how many times I'd been at a meet, maybe I swam poorly in my individual events, but man, when it came down to the relay, I was not about to let my teammates down. So I would maybe swim a, you know, an awful 100 free in my individual event, but for the relay, I would PR because I was doing it for my teammates. So that competition, I think when it's team related, can be really, really good. When it's just an individual event, maybe not as, as beneficial. But I think there's something to that. Increasingly less competition um, in, in school. All right, so parents, what can you do about that? You know, if, you're, if your kid, and I know not all boys thrive on competition, but I think a lot of them do. And if your boy is not being challenged, you know, you need to find a place where he's being challenged. Like you don't want that fire in him to be snuffed out. All right, you know, I think competition can be really, really healthy to a point, all right? And I could go off on the unhealthy parts of it well, because I have lived that too, but to a point, I think competition is really, really helpful. So find an outlet for it. There, there has to be something where the, the, the outcome is in doubt. Um, it can't be rigged, all right? There has, the outcome has to be in doubt. Performance matters. Um, you can help make school more competitive for your son. You know, maybe, uh, you know, my daughter, uber competitive, okay, and I know she gets it from me. Well, not once have we ever had to encourage Maddie to work harder or, or, or try harder in anything that she's ever done. Um, class rank was a big deal for her. Like she wanted to move up. Like that was a big motivating factor for her. If that would be a motivation for your son, you know, go for it. Hey, where are you ranked right now? Hey, you started the year here. Where can you finish the year? Um, you know, create a, a reading challenge, something like, okay, we're going to reward you for how many books that you're going to read. Um, Encourage him to join a sports team if he's not already on one. You know, um, you know lots of high school sports are, are no cut. You know, football, baseball, you know, basketball, your son could get cut. Swimming, track, cross country, no cut sports. All right, great outlets for, for competition. Um, and if he's more cerebral, like get involved in the math club that competes, you know, speech, debate, mock trial. Like there's all these places, outlets. You might have to look for them a little harder if they're not just happening naturally in the school, but you can find those places. Um, for him as well. The, um, let me try to miss something here. Oh, there's a handout on your, your table here. Uh, Angela Duckworth wrote this book called Grit. I don't know if you guys, any of you guys read that book. Fantastic book. You know, talking about grit, kind of talking about why we don't see our children growing up more gritty. But this uh, sheet of paper talks, it's called the hard thing rule. You can, you can do this in your home. Like you, you challenge your son or your daughter, hey, Pick one hard thing, and guess what? Mom and dad are gonna do that too. And we're gonna work really hard at it. And there's some different rules that she kind of lays out in that, but it's just the idea of challenge and equipping, um, especially when our culture maybe is not rewarding that, you know, the way that we would want it to. So please check that out. All right, we're gonna go to the third factor. And I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on this one. The third factor, is a prescription drugs, specifically medications for ADHD. Um, and also it is ADHD now. Before like it could be ADHD or it could be ADD, but now clinically speaking for whatever reason, um, it's always ADHD. The, uh, the, I always have a hard time pronouncing it. The, hyper, the attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. That is ADHD. And here is a disclaimer. I am not a doctor. 
Okay, I think that's really obvious, but somebody say that on the front end. I'm not telling you your kid should not be taking medication, or maybe I know your kid. I'm not going to tell you to, you know, assign medication to your child. Um, there are kids that definitely need to be on some kind of medication, but I also believe that a lot of kids are medicated that should not be medicated, and, and Dr. Sachs really breaks that down well in this chapter. Um, but lots of times it's, it's misdiagnosed. So here's a common scenario. This is what I want you to picture. And this happens all the time in our, in our public schools. It's, it's kindergarten. It's first grade. You have a boy. And guess what? He's not paying attention. All right? He cannot sit still for six hours. Um, he is easily distracted. Maybe it's a distraction to someone else. Um, that could be a, a present a problem for the teacher. So the teacher calls you and says, you know, your son is struggling in these ways. He may have... ADHD, like you might want to get him checked out, okay? And so you think, okay, what's the harm in that? So you naturally would go to your doctor and say, hey, the teacher thinks maybe my son has ADHD, you know, what do you think? Um, and so you, the, the, uh, the doctor might say, well, you know what? Let's just try it. Let's see what happens. You know, we could prescribe something, um, Adderall, Ritalin, something. We'll just see if it will help. And here's the deal. It will Okay, whether your son has ADHD or not, being on that medication, it will make a difference. All right, so this is crazy to me um, that there is research on this. Um, an MIT professor, they did a study on hundreds of kids, and I hate to call these kids normal, okay, but they're, well, just for the use of this, like there's normal kids and then kids that actually did have ADHD. All of them took medication, even the kids who did not need it. All of them, their performance was increased, okay? All of them. So it's not surprising that taking a drug that will help you focus will help you do better in school. But just because that drug helps you focus does not mean you have ADHD, okay? So it might make life easier for the teacher, but it might not be the best thing um, for your son. And this might sound really harsh, okay? And, and I mean, I married a teacher. I love teachers, you know, have many friends that are teachers. But um, the goal is not to make life easier for the teacher, okay? Especially when it comes to something like this, where your son is taking a heavy-duty drug that has, that has the potential to have a lot of negative side effects. So, yes, he might sit still and be better behaved, but it could come at a cost, you know, and I recognize, you know, classrooms are they're overcrowded. Um, you know, I think teachers have, you know, there's all kinds of obstacles that teachers face. So, I, yes, my heart goes out to the teacher. But at the same time, um, I'm, I'm worried about our boys, all right, being medicated when they should not be medicated. Um, and also, this might sound like a shocking statement, but not every kid is smart, all right? Not every boy is smart. And just because your son is not in the top 2% of his class does not mean he has a disorder of some kind, okay? It doesn't mean he has ADHD. It doesn't mean that he's dyslexic. Some kids are just smarter than others, okay? I, I said it, um, but I think that is the truth. So sometimes I think as parents, we are looking for solutions, um, and we're not usually even looking at our own parenting, although that might have something to do with it as well. But it's way easier to say, oh, yeah, he is this, so we are medicating him, all right, versus really taking responsibility or recognizing maybe he's not 
as smart as we would like him to be. And that is not a slam. That is just reality. That is just reality. Um, but I think some parents would rather hear their child needs medication than realizing that he's just not that smart. Um, so you might be thinking, okay, what's the harm in taking medication? Okay, maybe more than you think. Um, taking Adderall, Retlin, uh, Concerta has side effects. Here are some of the more concerning ones, and this kind of opened my eyes. I had no idea. Um, but ADHD medication can stunt your child's growth. Um, even short-term use can lead to changes in personality. A boy who used to be agreeable, outgoing, and adventurous may become lazy and disengaged. Yes, they might be able to pay attention more, but at a cost. And this is the one that I found most shocking. It says ADHD medication can damage an area in the developing brain called the nucleus accumbens. And this can lead to lifelong consequences where drive is essentially crushed, leading to a lack of motivation, apathy, and less engagement. This isn't even just why the boy is taking the medication. That is for the rest of his life. That is really scary to me. And if I think back, okay, but maybe he paid better attention in second grade, but at a great cost, all right? And again, I'm not saying that some kids do not need medication because clearly some do, but some are better than others. Some have a stimulant, some of them don't. As parents, it's really important that you do your research. You know, don't just take for word. If your doctor says, take this, like, okay, great, I'll take this. Because some of them have less side effects, fewer side effects than others. Um, all right, so what can you do if your son has too much energy or has a hard time sitting in, uh, still or is restless or hyper? Maybe it's ADHD, maybe it's not. Um, you can consult a de uh, developmental psychologist for an assessment rather than seeing your primary care physician, and that's really important. A psychological evaluation is very important when it comes to making a diagnosis versus, yeah, the teacher said he's kind of out of control, all right? That's not a diagnosis. Having a, a trained professional makes a huge difference. Exercise, our boys, they need to exercise and move. That's really important as well. You know, but I also recognize some of the kids that struggle in this area, they don't make great, uh, they, they, don't well do, they don't do well on, in, in team sports. Um, you know, soccer, football, lacrosse, that type of thing. But maybe they would do better in an individual sport, something like track or cross country or tennis or golf or swimming, something where they could just focus, right, without having to worry about people around them. Also, changes in diet have proven to make a huge difference with kids with symptoms that are, you know, ADHD symptoms. Um, you know, milk, chocolate, soy, wheat, eggs, beans, corn, tomatoes, grapes, oranges. You know, some of these things are obviously are healthy things. They might have a negative effect on your son, all right, and his behavior and his ability to control you know, himself. Um, we've already talked about this, but you know, you know, excessive video game playing can contribute to ADHD-like symptoms. Um, and also, guys, our, it's our parenting. Consistent parenting makes a huge difference as well. But again, it's a way easier to say, it's, it's a, we make an excuse. Well, no, he, he's got a chemical imbalance versus taking ownership of our own parenting and providing structure that a lot of our boys need. Uh, the fourth factor, jumping ahead, is... Um, Environmental toxins, and I'm not going to spend really any time talking about this, but that chapter was fascinating. Um, and largely, it, it has to do with all, so many of the chemicals that we are subjected to now, especially in plastics. Um, they are filled with estrogen, um, and that's one of the worst things a developing boy could take. And it works against boys, and that's one reason why boys or puberty is so delayed nowadays compared to where it was 20 or 30, 40 years ago. And that's why girls 
you know, the onset, on, uh, the onset of puberty is beginning now around ages 9 and 10, where most, uh, or, or, or like half the population of girls have completed puberty by the time they were 10 now. Um, because of all the chemicals in the plastics and the other things. So he basically says, don't drink out of plastic. Don't use plastic containers. Never heat something up in plastic and then eat it. Some of those things maybe you've heard of before. And then we're like, oh, but aren't there safe plastics and bad plastics? Yes, some of that's true as well. When in doubt, he's like, drink out of glass. You know, not going to spend any more time on that, but that's something that's really important to you. I would encourage you to read that chapter. There's a lot more on that. Um, but this is the biggest one, all right? Maybe this is the, the most important thing, and we saved this one for last. And this is the fifth factor, and this is just the, the devaluation of masculinity, um, just in our culture. Um, culture at large seems to, uh, to look down on masculinity. And I'm sure most of you have heard the phrase toxic masculinity. And I definitely agree that some masculinity can be toxic. But now there's this movement saying that all masculinity is toxic. Like those are synonymous now. Toxic masculinity. Like those two things have to go together. Um, and that's really unfortunate. But honestly, guys, I mean, we've done this to ourselves. You know, if you look at, at large, just at men and how they have abused their strength, abused their power. You think about all of the, the sex scandals that have come to light recently. You think about the, the, the Me Too movement. A lot of this, we are to blame, all right? Men behaving poorly. Um, and uh, that is hurting us in the eyes of, of women. So I think increasingly, and, and this is something I've done a ton of reading on, it's really discouraging, but increasingly, um, you know, we're seeing that women want a feminized version of malehood, okay, a feminized male. Um, men are being seen or portrayed as defective women, or um, they just want a safer version of manhood. I mean, I think in our culture, the pendulum has swung. Well, I think there's a time where men were seen as we want to be seen, as the hero, the protector, the knight, the guy that was going to stand up um, for their families, for women and children, you know, the pendulum has swung now, but we're not viewed that way anymore. All right. We have to prove ourselves you know, worthy of that. Um, and women do not see us as, as safe. And when I hear that, the first thing I think about, I think about Aslan. All right. If you guys have read the, the Chronicles of Narnia, right, we're first introduced to Aslan. I love this. This is a quote from uh, C.S. Lewis in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It says, you know, Aslan is a lion. This is a conversation between Susan and Mr. Beaver. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I love that idea, all right? Good, but not necessarily safe. All right, we'll talk about more about that. And also, I don't think the goal is just to be nice either. Okay, we'll talk about that. Um, our culture has completely devalued gender and especially, you know, traditional gender roles. Um, I want to read this. I thought this is pretty telling. Um, there was a secular study done at Dartmouth about gender and their research kept coming up against one truth Gender matters. This is not a Christian study. All right, secular study. Gender matters. The panel wrote, in much of today's social science writing, and also more generally within elite culture, gender tends to be viewed primarily as a set of traits and as a tendency to engage in certain roles. Yet, 
the current weight of evidence suggests that this understanding is seriously incomplete. Gender runs deeper, near to the core of human identity and social meaning, in part because it is biologically primed and connected to differences in brain structure and function, and in part because it is so deeply implicated in the transition to adulthood. If you believe the Bible, that would come as no surprise, all right? But I think our culture now is, is arguing against this as, this, as if this is wrong. That's why I think a, a study that is, a secular study that's weighted this way is really interesting, all right? Because most of the studies are saying, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, all right? That's why Genesis is so beautiful, all right? Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27, we have that PowerPoint. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God. He created them, male and female. He created them, all right? It, it, it's so simple. Uh, but it is anything but simple now. Okay, I know you're familiar with these two symbols, right? The, the symbol, male symbol, the female symbol, you know, from the, from the Roman gods, from you know, Mars and Venus. Like we've seen these, but this is what it looks like today. I, it is, and I'm not making fun of this, but it is so confusing because there's bi-gender, tri-gender, there's intergender, there's agender. I mean, I don't even know what all of these mean, but that represents, I mean, I know sometimes there's even bigger, larger graphs, that's how we're our children. This is what they're being taught in school. This is all acceptable and great, you know, um, but it's a confusing, confusing time as you can imagine for young boys. Um, it's not as simple as male and, and female. And I think this is fascinating. This happened at Portland State uh, just last year. There's a panel discussion. Uh, a visiting biology professor made the statement that on average, men are taller than women. Okay, that is a fact. On average, men are taller than women. A group of students stood up in protest, calling the panel a bunch of fascists, and that the professor who said this was a Nazi. And then women who stayed in that room were considered brainwashed. All because a true statement was made, on average, men are taller than women. All right, we live in a crazy world. All right, here's a few more examples. Um, increasingly in schools, all gender-specific language is being eradicated um, because for two reasons. One, um, evidently it promotes gender stereotypes, gender stereotypes, that's one reason. But also for that, for that idea of just, we could be all inclusive. So you don't say, good morning, boys and girls. That's offensive. All right, you can say, good morning, pupils, good morning, students. Um, and this is here in Lake Oswego, by the way. This is, you know, just had a conversation with a friend that's a teacher in fifth grade, and they have eradicated all gender-specific language. You know, you're not allowed to refer to boys and girls. You would never think to divide up the room that way. Boys over here, girls over here. Because if you do that, you're just, you know, what you're saying is, you know, girls can't be doctors one day, all right? Boys can only be construction workers. You know, a boy can't be kind because he's a boy, just because you refer to them as a boy and a girl. I can't imagine any eight-year-old jumping to that. Like, oh, well, she said it. She called me a boy. Therefore, I guess I can't do this. All right? I, I don't get it, but that's the world that we live in. Um, oh, and I know you, you can't call a gingerbread man a gingerbread man anymore. It's a gingerbread person. That's important. Um, the American Psychological Association has released 10 guidelines for psychologists who work with men and boys. 
The guidelines posit that males who are socialized to conform to traditional masculinity ideology are often negatively infected in terms of mental and physical health. They acknowledge that ideas about masculinity vary across cultures, age groups, and ethnicities, but they point to a common theme. Now listen to these themes. Uh, themes like anti-femininity, achievement, a skewal of the appearance of weakness, adventure, and risk and violence. All those things are really bad. That's what's hurting our boys. I don't see what is wrong with those things. I really don't. Okay, this idea of being like anti-femininity, it's not anti-woman, but anti-femininity. Like a young boy cannot appreciate or understand another boy who is feminine. I mean, I, I, that's just not natural. Um, they, you know, I'm not saying that other boys are homosexual, but most boys have boy behavior and think like boys. Um, and so they can't appreciate what's different, all right? And again, I'm not saying that they're um, anti-female, um, but they don't appreciate or understand the femininity in, in other boys. Um, I guess that's normal. Um, this idea of achievement, adventure, and risk, those are negative things according to this study, all right? If we encourage our boys towards achievement, adventure, and risk, I, again, I don't understand what's wrong with those things. Um, you know, suggesting that it's better to sit inside all day than to, 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 to go on a hike, all right? To do something outside of your home. And then violence. And, and I'm not saying I'm pro-violence, but I think there is a place for violence in this world. And I think boys are more naturally aggressive. That's the testosterone that they have. They're more aggressive than girls. And they're going to act on that. And it's not bad, but they're being told that it is bad because they're not, these boys are not behaving like, their female counterparts, and they're not designed to. They were designed by God to behave in such a way. All right, so I was going back to my own elementary school experience. This is what I remember. Okay, I remember I, I, I invented a game, okay? Uh, it was called the trip game, and here's how we play. The rules are really simple. You had one person that was it. That person would run for his life while you had 20 or 30 of your classmates running after you trying to trip you. They would kick you in the shin until you fell down. All right, that was a game I made up. We called it the trip game. I loved it. I love being it. There was something about having just running for my life. All right, you get tripped, you fall down. And then the last person that tripped you, he's it. So everyone would turn on him and go run after him. All right, is that violent? I guess so, yeah. Um, and it was outlawed after a while. The teachers are like, okay, no more trip game. But we live for the trip game. We, love, we didn't make anybody play. No girls wanted to play, but we loved it, okay? We loved it. That's why most boys love dodgeball. Not everybody does, but most boys you know, love dodgeball. I think it's the same thing. All right, also you talked about avoiding weakness. I don't, I don't know anyone who wants to be weak. You know, when I look at my life and the areas in which I'm weak, well, I want to be stronger because I want to be a better man. You know, whatever that weakness is, I'm not just talking about physical weakness. It could be, you know, an emotional weakness or a spiritual weakness. I want to be better. All right. And even I think about the Apostle Paul who boasts in his weaknesses, you know, he does that because he wants the power of God to live through him. That's what makes him strong. So it's still about power, um, still not wanting to be weak for the sake of weak, but to allowing something even bigger to indwell you. So this, I, I don't see what's wrong with these things, all right? But we live in a culture that, that does think it's wrong. Um, here's a response to that. I thought this was interesting. Is if men are struggling more, the farther we move from those traditional norms is the answer to continue denying and suppressing a boy's essential nature 
Um, you know, the answer would be no. That was David French from the National Review. Um, so obviously, I think it is a very, very confusing time for boys and for men. If you exhibit any kind of manliness or maleness, you can be labeled as sexist, misogynistic, or chauvinistic. You know, and just you talk pro-male, it does not mean you're anti-female. Um, I have a daughter. I love my daughter. I want her to be strong, courageous, independent. You know, I want her to take over the world. I don't use anything wrong with that. I love my son. I want great things for him. I am a better man for having married the woman that I married. All right. I love the women in my life. Not anti-female, not anti-woman, not anti-girl, but I am definitely pro-male. Because I think it's so important. There's a role that we play, a God-given role that we play that I think is being uh, crushed. Um, So what do you do? What can you do about it? Okay, here's a picture. Um, I don't know if you guys have saw that. This is from a couple years ago. This is at a baseball game. I don't think you see it clearly enough to know what's happening. Um, The batter, the bat flew out 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 of his hands. And so it goes into the crowd. And so you see this dad you know, throwing his arm in front of uh, his boy's face, protecting his face. There's actually a YouTube video on this too. They interview him. They talk about kind of what had happened. Um, I've never made a meme before. This is the first meme I've ever made. So this is how I look at it now. We got the dad, we got the sons, and we got the feminized culture that is coming at him like a bat. And if you look at that boy's expression, He is clueless. He has no idea what his dad just saved him from. Um, And what they were talking about was he had just taken a picture, you know, to send her this mom. And he's looking at the picture and he just started to look up. He has no idea what is hitting him. All right. But the dad does. The dad is standing in the way, protecting his son. All right. And I really do believe the feminized culture, the devaluation of masculinity, it is coming hard for our boys, all right? So dads, there's something that we've got to do. This is super important, all right? Um, we do not want to give into what the culture says. So how do we combat a culture that increasingly devaluates masculinity? Okay, I'm gonna give you four ways, all right? We got 20 minutes left, I'm gonna go fast. Four ways, all right? I think these are so important. And I am getting away from the book now. Um, number one, we need to learn from the ultimate man and that is Jesus Christ. You cannot do better than Jesus. You cannot do better than Jesus. And if you haven't done this before, I encourage you, read through one of the gospels. Yeah, I did this with that Bible study. You know, I started when these boys were in sixth grade. Now they're juniors. This whole last year we spent in the book of Mark looking at Jesus and his masculinity. What can we learn from the gospels about Jesus as a man? Look at who he is uh, as a lesson in manhood. So if you think about Jesus, this is the way I break it down. He is the lion of Judah, all right? And you see evidence that in scripture, you do not mess with Jesus. He is the lion of Judah, but he is also the lamb worthy to be slain. He is the lion, he is the lamb. It's both, all right? If you're all lion, I think that is toxic masculinity. That's the bravado, that's the machismo. That is not healthy. All lion is not healthy. All lamb? That's not healthy either, okay? That's passive, that's weak, that's the pansy, okay? I don't want my son to be a lamb. I don't want him to be a lion. I want that perfect infusion of both, the lion and the lamb. So if you think about Jesus as the lion, oh my gosh, there's no one more courageous than Jesus. Um, Think about him casting out demons, you know, the way he takes on the Pharisees, um, the way he cleans out the temple. I mean, you see Jesus as a lion clearly. 
We haven't seen anything yet, though, about Jesus. I mean, wait till Revelation. Wait till we see him come back. All right, when you see the tatted up Jesus with the sword coming out of his mouth, I mean, we're going to see the Lion of Judah, okay? But he is also the Lamb. There's no one more courageous than Jesus, but his humility, I think about his humility, his love, his service, his gentleness, that's Jesus too. You know, I think about, um, you know, how he treated the woman that was caught in the act of adultery, how he welcomed, you know, the little children. Um, you know, he was so kind and loving. Um, he washed it, washing the disciples' feet. And then ultimately just like his willingness to lay down his life on the cross. Like there's not a more humble act. All right, lion and lamb. And I've been thinking about this for quite a while, you know, and I, I, again, I want that for myself, that lion and, the, and that lamb. Some of the highest praise I ever received from my wife, wife is when she affirms these characters, characteristics in me. When she sees the lion, she sees the protector. You know, and she sees the lamb, she can see my tenderness. That's when I know I'm in the ballpark of who I need to be as, as a man. Um, so here's what I've come up with. Now, next year, 2020, I don't know exactly when we're going to do this, but we're going to do a special breakfast. It will be a father-son breakfast. But we're going to break all this down. I'm just going to give you a little taste of it right now. But I've taken that, that idea of the lion and the lamb, and what I call it now, I call it living lion-hearted. Living lion-hearted. I think that's what Jesus was. And this is, uh, there's seven words, seven key words, and this is how you know, I define it. It is living with a spirit-filled, there's a slide, yeah, spirit-filled masculinity marked by love and service, courage and humility. That is a picture of Jesus. I was trying to create something concise, that I could, I pray through this every morning. This is how I want to live. This is what I want to be as a man. And if I would have come up with this 10 years ago, I would not have even included this line about masculinity. But I think right now in our culture, that is more important than ever, all right? Spirit-filled masculinity. So when we gather again as a group of fathers and sons, if you would like to join me in that, these seven, these yellow words, these are the words I highlight and focus. Each one is strategic and purposeful. But this is who I want to be as a man. This is how I want my son to be. And I think that's how Jesus is, okay? Um, so that's number one, looking at Jesus. We learn from the ultimate man. Number two, as dads and as granddads, we must model a healthy masculinity. Um, you know, it's been said to be a man, a boy must see a man. And they're not seeing it in our culture. Um, so let me ask you a penetrating question. What is your son, what is your grandson seeing in you? You know, are you a model of masculinity? Do you look like Jesus? Um, and there's a difference between boys and men. I've heard it be said too that, you know, you're born a male, but you must become a man. And I love 1 Corinthians um, chapter 13, 11. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. And I think there's way too many men out there who are still behaving as children, and that's what we're modeling. Um, we do not want to Lord of the Flies, okay, environments. I'm sure I'm, I'm assuming many of you guys read that book. If you haven't read it, it's worth the read or go back and read it again. Uh, we don't need a, a Lord of the Flies rule uh, by a world that's just, you know, it's a bunch of undisciplined men. Um, but teenage boys without strong leadership can become barbarians. I really believe that. And that whole idea of boys will be boys, that's a whole other thing we could talk about. 
if I ever say that, it's never an excuse for the behavior. Like you still hold a boy accountable, but there are things that boys will do that girls will not do. It is in their nature to do them. They still need correction and guidance. I don't say that ever as just to dismiss it, but I say that to say, yeah, I understand why my son behaved that way, but maybe I need to rein him in as well. Um, there is a, um, a great book came out years ago by Donald Miller, same guy that wrote Blue Light Jazz. Originally the book was titled um, To Own a Dragon, but now it's called Father Fiction. And it's the whole idea of just being raised without a father, you know, what that looks like and how that makes it so hard for young men to know what it looks like to become a man. The book is fascinating. And I don't have time to read this story, but there's this excerpt that talks about um, there's this elephant trust, maybe you heard the story, where there's a bunch of you know, teenage elephants that were living together and they were barbaric. I mean, they were killing rhinoceroses, okay? They were stabbing them and drowning them, all right? These elephants, they did not know how to behave. They were teenage element, elephants. Um, and in the wild, what happens is, um, you know, there's a male elephants can scent when a teenage elephant is kind of going through puberty and they will bond with that elephant and provide, the, the older male elephant will provide, um, you know, a, a, an example of what a, a male elephant should look like. But without that, they were barbarian. It was Lord of the Flies elephant style. And so on this elephant trust, they had this huge problem with these elephants until they brought in a much older, wiser, seasoned elephant. And the behavior changed like that, all right? Because they knew how to behave, how, how to act, okay? And then number three, um, Share examples of healthy masculinity with your son, okay, both real and fictitious. I'm always looking for examples of healthy masculinity to point my son towards. Um, this, okay, I'm gonna show this video. I, I love this video because I think this is kind of a blend of, of what we're talking about. This actually happened here last year at, at Portland School. The ingredients are a recipe for disaster, a gunman, a school hallway, and students fleeing for their lives. Possibly going to be an active shooter now at Park Rose High School, need more cars. Except this story doesn't end in tragedy. It ends with a heartfelt hug. Obviously, he broke down, and, and I just wanted to let him know that I was there for him. In May, then 18-year-old Angel Granados Diaz brought a shotgun to his Oregon high school, concealed under a garment bag. Minutes later, sports coach Keenan Lowe, also a security guard, went to check on Granados Diaz, not knowing that he was armed. In a fraction of a second, I analyzed everything really fast. I saw the look in his face, look in his eyes, looked at the gun. Prosecutors say the student tried to discharge the weapon on himself before Lowe wrestled it away, handing the shotgun to a teacher, and then this hug that seemed to go on for minutes, the boy tightening his arms and the coach his resolve. Tonight, public reaction to this heart-melting gesture pouring in. What a compassionate hero. This coach has tremendous courage. In another tweet, Kindness speaks volumes. Granados Diaz reaching a plea agreement. All right, we can skip the, the rest of it. The compassion, I, I love that. I mean, the first time I saw that, I, I wept. I mean, because clearly he did the right, I mean, he, he pulled the gun away, but then the hug after the, I, I love that combination. That's the lion and the lamb. That's the combination of what I think we need, our culture needs. So I'm always looking for examples to share with my son. You know, I really encourage you too. I encourage your sons to read great biographies, autobiographies about some great men. Um, have you guys ever read Unbroken, the Louis Zamperini story? You guys would love it. It is incredible. Your sons would love it. Boys in a Boat, um, another great book, you know, and that takes place here in the, in the Pacific Northwest. Like you just seen like courage played out, compassion played out, perseverance played out. 
great, great books. And there's many great books. Of course, the Bible is filled with great men uh, to look at as well. Um, Sometimes I like to look at just even fictitious examples. Um, I'm not going to show this next video just in the interest of time, but, um, you know, um, one of my favorite scenes in any of the Avenger movies is when uh, Captain America, before he becomes Captain America, he's on the, air, on, the, on, the, on the army base, and they throw a skinny little wimpy guy, and they throw a grenade, it's a dummy grenade. Who do you think jumps on the dummy grenade? He does, before he becomes Captain America. I mean, it's, it's fiction, I know, but it was a selfless act. It was beautiful, and the big bully, and that, you know, he's running for his life, okay? Those kind of moments speak to me. Um, I don't know if you guys have read any of the Jack Reacher books, okay? There's a couple of movies, too. I've talked about this before as well. Um, Jack Reacher, he's an ex-military cop. He's 6'5", 250 pounds. I mean, he's a badass in every way. But Lee Childs, the, the author of these stories, when... Um, this is what he wrote related to his, um, his character. He wrote, he has no need or interest in employment. He has no proactive, he's not a proactive do-gooder. So why does he get involved in things? Well, partly because of, this is a French word, noblesse oblige, which is a French chivalry concept that means nobility obligates. I love that. Nobility obligates. This mandates honorable, generous, and responsible behavior because of high rank or birth. When I think about that, like that's, a, that's us as sons of the most high God. Our nobility obligates us in the way we behave and act and serve and love people in this world. I want my son to see that. Um, here's some homework if you want to do this. The movie Troy, I don't know if you guys have ever seen this. It came out in uh, 2004, I think. It's rated R, so not appropriate for young kids. It is a fascinating study of manhood, manliness, you know, what is a man? And it has an all-star cast, you know, this is, it's based loosely on Homer's The Iliad. And it, I, Mason and I watched this really strategically in a whole conversation about what we saw in these different men. Who was the ultimate example of manhood, okay? And I promise you, it's not the Brad Pitt character, although you may think that in the beginning. It is fascinating. Look for those kind of examples and talk about, um, and I won't go spend a lot of time on this too, but the American Film Institute came up with a list of you know, the top 50 film heroes of all time, the top 50 villains of all time. It's a, it's a dated list now, but I doubt the number one would ever change. I've talked about this before, so maybe you know what it is. Number one he movie hero is this. Atticus Finch from To Kill a Mockingbird. If you have not read To Kill a Mockingbird in a while, it's worth reading it again. I mean, I don't know if you can do better than Atticus Finch you know, as a fictitious hero. Um, our boys need examples like this as well. So that was the third thing. And number four, this is the last thing. Um, celebrate significant moments, rites of passages in your son's life. That's something other cultures do a really, really good job of, but we typically don't. On your uh, table, there's something I came up with called the manhood plan. And this is something I'm walking Mason through. And I got a lot of these ideas for a book called Raising a Modern Day Night. And I took it a little bit further, but please take that with you. And look at that, and it's like, it's just celebrating those key milestones, all right? Recognizing, you know, your son is 10. Hey, that's double digits. Let's celebrate that, all right? Hey, you're 13. You're a teenager now. You're 16. You are driving. 18. Hey, you can serve in the military, all right? 21. You can legally drink. What does that look like? And up to the point where he gets married, celebrate those milestones. And I've been doing that with Mason now for years, and we talk about all kinds of key, you know, things at those, at those different ages would require. Um, we need to play an active role in that type of thing. 
All right, so I'm closing this with this. All right, I'm going to close with this passage of Scripture. Um, and I don't think this is what Paul had in mind when he wrote it, but I think it relates specifically to us as just a group of men who want to love our sons. This is what Paul says. He says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Guys, I really believe that all of our lives have significant meaning and purpose. Like that is why we are here. That is why we are born, um, not by mistake or accident. I mean, I think we are here as God's agents to help redeem a very broken world. God chooses to use sinful men and women to do that. And that includes your boys. Um, but there are obstacles, there's things that stand against it. And it's the five things that we just talked about. All those things can take us out, all right, to, to take us down the wrong path, or we would devalue our masculine energy and strength, our God-given masculine energy and strength. Um, our boys, those confusing messages they're hearing at school. Um, I fear for our boys, you know, and the men that they're going to become, you know, and the examples that they currently have. Um, so there are obstacles, there's things that hinder, all right, there's sin that ensnares, and I want to do the best job I can to protect my son from that. Um, so we need to keep our eyes on Jesus, you know, the ultimate man. The world needs good men, not safe, not nice, but good men. Um, and all these things that we talked about this morning are the things that stand in our way. So here is my prayer. That's us as, as fathers and sons, that well, let us as fathers and sons, grandfathers and grandsons, run with the perseverance, the race marked out for us, despite what our culture is trying to teach us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the ultimate man and the author and the perfecter of our faith. Father, let me pray. Father, thank you for this time. Uh, Father, thank you for the great love you have for us. And we thank you for your son, Jesus, the ultimate man. You know, I know we live in such a broken world and it's not getting better, Father. Um, we long for you to return. We long for Jesus, for you to come back. But while we are here, help us to fight the good fight. Help us to love well, to serve well. Help us to model a healthy masculinity. All these factors that we talked about, I pray that they would lose its power over our boys. Those things would not be the negative influences that they seem to be so much so right now. Um, help us as dads to protect our sons from a feminized culture. Um, and help us to grow in our own strength and, and masculinity uh, and look more like your son, Jesus. Uh, we need you desperately, Father, um, to work and move in our lives. So I pray that, uh, that you would. I pray that we would receive it. Um, I pray this in the power of your son's name, Jesus. Amen.